You're listening to another episode of the Zag. Eric Hope here. Excited to be joined by Tejas Shaw, 2015 NLC Chicago Fellow, an immigration lawyer doing the good work in the Midwest on all things that are going on related to immigration. And as you can imagine, there's a lot. Excited to talk to him about the ways that he's helping the resistance. Thanks for listening to this episode. Let's get to it. So in, in terms of being the type of lawyer you ended up being, what's the backstory and how immigration was the place you decided to go into? Good question. Uh, so partially by design, partially by default. Um, my parents immigrated here in the 1970s from India. Um, and so I've already I've always sort of uh, been surrounded by immigrants and, and grown up hearing the stories about, you know, my dad got here with $6 in his pockets and it was snowing and he didn't have a jacket. And every time I hear the story, it seems like the amount of money he had in his pocket was slightly different. Some days he had shoes, some days he didn't have a jacket, and some days it was snow, a snowstorm. But but that's just you know um, that's neither here nor there. But um, you know I, I went to law school out in the Washington D.C. area, and um, immigration was one of the areas that I enjoyed um, learning about. And I didn't necessarily go into law school thinking I was going to become an immigration lawyer, but. Um, and when I started looking for work and working with people, I just found that I had a natural affinity for it. I had a natural affinity also because of my language skills. I'm fluent in a couple of Indian languages. For working with people, immigrants want to work with people often who speak their language. It just makes them feel more comfortable. Um, and I could relate to the stories that many immigrants tell me today uh, about their experiences after moving to this country because I've heard those stories before. Um, you know, I, I think of my role as an immigration lawyer, particularly actually sort of translating, you know, life experiences and immigrants and the issues that they're dealing with for employers that, frankly, you know, particularly for somebody who's been born and brought up here and has never had to deal with immigration, it's, it's almost difficult to imagine things like, oh, wait, there's a quota for visas and we could sponsor somebody for a visa and there's a lottery and there's a chance that they might not be selected for the lottery or, you know, the single error on a piece of paperwork could result in person you know, being denied for a visa, you know, things like that. So um, it um, it was fortuitous set of circumstances, like I said, partially by design and partially by, you know, um, just dumb sheer luck. This is this is where I found myself, you know, uh, working. And then when you think about the folks that are reaching out to you now, obviously individuals that you're talking to, but system folks are reaching out to you, school districts, things like that. When you do get people making that outreach, what patterns do you hear the most, what things do you hear the most uh, frequently in terms of, okay, how do I protect my uh, folks in, say, a given school building? But then uh, do you also advise them on, on how they can uh, play a role in upending the policies that are leading them to make these calls in the first place? How do you balance those two things? Well, you know, I have to strike the balance because, um, you know, I just don't know the audience that I'm speaking to, you know, in the school district. Um, I, I could be speaking to somebody who's on a very different ideological political spectrum than I am. And so I try to um, not sort of hew too far into my advocacy mode, although that isn't such an important moment that I do for fear of potentially, potentially alienating the person that I'm, I'm speaking with. Um, so, you know, I, I try to strike the balance. I mean, I, I think ultimately, um, uh, you know, it, I, I try to address the issue um, that they're presenting with while also, um, at the end of the day, emphasizing that, you know, if you want true change, it's going to require 
um, going out there and, and speaking to the policymakers. And a good example of that yesterday was the conversation I had with a assistant superintendent at a school district. They sponsored a um, Mexican uh, choir teacher for a work visa. And because of the nature of this quota for this particular work visa, the person did not get selected in the lottery. And so I had to have that very difficult conversation with them to say, yeah, unfortunately, he didn't get selected and his work authorization is going to expire in several days and you're not going to be able to employ him beyond that. And and really the conversation thereafter was, well, if you want to see this change, you know, you've got to emphasize to the powers that be, your congressional representative, the senator from your state, that, you know, it's, it's um, it, it, these are the real world impacts of, of these changes. We have a shortage of teachers right now across the state and, and in this country, and here we have a highly talented, highly gifted educator who the school district wants to keep, but federal law and policy won't allow them to do that, you know? So... That makes sense. And then if you were advising somebody who's paying attention to the midterms that are coming up in November, and immigration is a key issue for them, what would you want them to listen for in a given candidate to make them feel like, oh, this is going to be someone who's going to champion in a progressive way an, an immigration stance that I want someone to take? Um, I, I, I guess what I would be looking for is a consistent record of, of having taken positions on immigration issues um, and not just somebody who, um, you know, is, is um, sort of speaking up now that it's convenient for the midterms. Um, uh, I think the second thing that I would want to look for um, is um, a degree of rationality in the way the person approaches um, the immigration issue and an understanding of the full realm of the immigration issue to not just turn it into a singular issue relating to one group of people, but to really focus on the various different aspects of immigration to the United States um, and, and um, you know, the ramifications of each and every one of them, because frankly, you know, it's just every area of immigration that's under assault right now. Um, and, and, and so, you know, really having a full an understanding of the full scope of it, I think, is important. Um, and, um, you know, somebody that has a track record, of, I think, of being able to accomplish something, to me, is incredibly important. Um, and, and accomplishing something, I think, requires, you know, an understanding of when you need to be combative um, and resist, you know, really um, backwards policies like what you know, we see with the travel ban and, um, you know, the attempt to take funding from, from, you know, certain cities and states that have policies that the Trump administration doesn't like. Um, but then also understanding when there might be an open there to work together and get something done. Um, because at the end of the day, I mean, you know, from working with my clients, I know that they just want stability. They want peace. They want to know that you know, they're going to be able to stay here and concentrate on all the things that we take for granted, you know, and not constantly be fearful about, you know, either being deported or their visa not being renewed. Um, so uh, I, I'd be looking for somebody that has a track record of, of, you know, caring about these issues. I'd be looking for somebody that demonstrates an understanding of the issues, because I think that there's a lot of misinformation and it demonstrates a holistic understanding of the different areas of immigration and, and somebody that can also show the ability to um, know how to get things done. And then out of these groups, which one do you feel ultimately can play the biggest role in rallying for positive change? Is it the private sector and more traditional businesses, or is it the tech sector? Um, well, in some ways, I see them as being one and the same. 
you know, um, if you talk to Facebooks of the world or you talk about the Googles of the world, um, I do think that they're incredibly important. Um, but, um, you know, I think that if you look at um, the more progressive realm of politics, I think you're going to see that the Facebooks of the world and the Googles of the world are already, you know, out there and they've been shouting horse for over a decade for progressive immigration changes in policy. Uh, I, I think where there's a greater need for change is what I will call Main Street America, you know, the small businesses, um, you know, and, and, and you know, the, the agricultural employers, for example, in places like Iowa and Nebraska, who are heavily dependent on agricultural labor that's often, you know, labor from other countries. Um, uh, that's where I think we really need to see some more rallying, um, because those are the groups I think that are going to be most influential on those group on those groups of legislators who I think are the biggest impediment right now to meaningful changes to immigration policy. And then I think one of the most uh, striking stories in, in in all these immigration stories that we've seen since 2016 is what's happened recently with the separation of children. I feel like there's still, I think it's very clear it's it's a, it's a severe, awful policy, but I think one of the ways this is getting muddied up a little bit is that folks are trying to link it back to this was a policy under the previous administration, or this was something that is not that different than before, which I, I don't believe that is true. But for someone who actually works in this field, can you sort fact from fiction on the most recent uh, striking images we're seeing of, of, of kids being separated from, from family members and being uh, lodged in old Walmarts in Washington state? What, what kind of things can we actually believe here? Yeah, so um, I'm glad you asked that question. I'll give you my um, understanding of the situation. So, in essence, you know, you have certain guidelines um, that have been established in federal law, you know, both as a result of litigation and rules that were adopted by the previous administration, which basically afford certain additional rights to children, um, uh, you know, uh, who, who are crossing the border. Um, you know, ensuring that they can't be detained for a lengthy period of time, ensuring that, you know, they have the right to make an asylum claim within a certain period of time, basically protecting them because they are children. Um, you also have this administration basically trying to send a message to everybody um, by using every tool that it can to deter immigration, including humanitarian immigration, you know, to the southern border, people who are crossing thousands of miles from places like El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala. And and so one of the things that they're doing is using what we call the smuggling bar. So there is a bar that's exists under the immigration law for a very long time, which basically, you know, uh, renders a person that um, smuggles somebody else to the United States, um, you know, uh, inadmissible. Um, and basically ineligible to obtain an immigration benefit. Now, that bar has never been applied to you know, refer to um, helping a child or family member enter the United States as smuggling. So, you know, when you look at the chain of migration that often happens, I shouldn't use that word because it's been turned into a, you know, frankly, an ugly word. But if you look at sort of the flow of migration to the U.S., often what happens is that you have family members such as a mother that first comes to the United States and, you know, they raise money and then they help a child um, come to the board, come to the United States after them. The administration is basically treating that as smuggling 
and using a variety of legal maneuvers to try to separate, um, you know, children from moms under those circumstances and basically, um, you know, using certain guidelines that were established by the previous administration to protect those kids who are crossing the border as a way to separate them from their parents. And you have you know, numerous examples of that. It's incredibly disingenuous for them to be referring to, um, you know, this as being a product of the previous administration's guidelines. I mean, really what they're asking to do is to take away those protections that have been created for, you know, particularly vulnerable populations and, and, and in essence, you know, sort of um, make it extremely difficult for any of these groups to, to come to the United States. So, um, you know, on a bigger level, um, you know, it, it's sort of like, um, uh, you know, basically saying, well, we don't have the rules that we want to play with. And so, you know, we're going to we're gonna do the worst that we can with the rules that you created. And, and oh, by the way, the situation is a product of, you know, the rules that you created. It's pretty disingenuous for them to be explaining it this way. So then last thing, do you see hope in any of this? Where do we go from here that gives you any sense of optimism? So it is a struggle sometimes um, to, um, you know, see hope where we are in, in terms of how we cross this place. Because, you know, when you're dealing with immigration policy on a day-to-day basis, um, it feels, you feel very pessimistic on certain days. Um, but, you know, it, it, it sort of, um, you know, one of my favorite things about Obama was, was his rhetoric and, and you know, um, there was one particular statement that he used to refer to over and over again, which, which really, you know, sometimes picks me up when I'm feeling a little bit down, which is, you know, that the arc of history tends to bend towards justice. And, um, you know, if you look back in history, this is not the first time that the United States has, um, had a really ugly phase with, with immigration. I mean, if you look at the late 1800s and you look at the first half of the the 20th century, you know, we basically made it impossible for the Chinese to immigrate to the United States with the Chinese Exclusion Acts. And there were massive riots and Chinese were mistreated. And it was only in World War II, during World War II, when, you know, we realized that we needed the Chinese to become our friends, you know, because of conflict with Japan, that that sort of changed. And it just tells me that as a country, we've gone through these stops and starts and, and really struggled at times with our identity as an immigrant nation. And, and it's always been smooth sailing. And while that doesn't justify or in any way um, make it easier to deal with where we are, it does give me a sense that, you know, in the long run, better sense is going to prevail because everyone in this country came from somewhere, you know. Uh, and and um, uh, I, I do think that that's going to win out at the end of the day. Now, there's going to be a lot of work that needs to happen to help us get there, Um and we're going to have to push the wheel forward, each of us in our own way. Um, uh, but, um, you know, I, I do see a lot of hope there. And I, I just don't think that the situation we have right now is sustainable. And I, I, I also think that as time goes by, um, the, the um, negative impact of the policies that this administration is carrying out are going to become clearer and clearer. And that's my hope. And we'll keep things from there. Yeah, we'll hope so as well. And listen, thanks for all you're doing, and thanks for everyone for listening to this episode of The Zag. You can find past episodes in the iTunes Store, Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Stitcher. More episodes coming soon. Thanks for listening. 